All right. Well, let me give you a recap of uh, where we've been in systematic theology, doing theological equipping, and then what we're doing today. Um, so a few things. First of all, we started off when we were doing this class talking about the Bible, what's called bibliology, the study of the book, the study of the Bible, uh, because you've got to start there. Uh, that's our source that we go to in theology. There are other sources, but that's our main source that we go to in theology, so we spent some time learning about that. Then we did a little uh, semester on how to study the Bible, what's called hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneuo is the Greek word that means to interpret or hermeneuane. And uh, so we spent some time talking about hermeneutics, how to correctly interpret the Bible. So we learned what the Bible was. We learned how to interpret the Bible. We then saw what the Bible taught us about God. So we studied what was called theology proper, and we learned that God is a trinity. We learned about Christ. We learned about the Spirit. We learned about all these different things. Uh, and then we studied man, right? God made a bunch of things, but his greatest creation is mankind, and we are special. Other animals are great, but we are better. We bear the image of God, which doesn't mean that we look like him. God doesn't have a body. Rather, it means that we rule and reign down here on earth, which is what we're commanded to do over the animals, uh, whereas God rules over everything. And uh, then we talked about sin. What happened to us? What, 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 what turned this beautiful Garden of Eden, everything being great, what happened? We talked about the doctrine of sin, what's called homardiology, and how we fell and how everything became broken. And then we've been talking about covenants. God's solution to healing the plight of mankind and our sin has been to make covenants with us. We have no claim on God. God could have just damned humanity when Adam fell, but instead God comes and he makes agreements and enters into a relationship uh, with mankind. And so we talked about that for the rest of the semester uh, until we get to July, when we break for July. We're going to now be talking about and entering into a different subject in theology, what is called soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Soteria means salvation. Soter means savior uh, in Greek. So we're going to be talking about soteriology. So basically what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks before we get to July is we're going to be talking about Christ and how he has purchased salvation for us. And then in the uh, new semester in the fall, we'll be talking about how we get those benefits, the application of that redemption. So the rest next few weeks is going to be how did Christ earn our salvation? And then next semester, how then do we get the benefits that Christ has earned for us? That's what we're going to be talking about. So you may or may have not liked covenants. You may or may have not thought that was kind of abstract, but I think you're going to like the next few lessons because they're about who? Yeah, Jesus. Are we big fans of Jesus? Yes. And so we're going to be talking about that. That is why we were called Christians. Uh, and so that's what we'll be talking about uh, over the next few weeks. So a few things of recap before we get into our topic today, which is specifically the life of Christ. Let's talk about the person of Christ. Just as a recap, we have these lessons online if you want to listen to them. First of all, let's just talk about God real quick. When we were talking about God and studying theology proper, we said that the Bible teaches three really clear things, three really clear propositional truths when it comes to the Trinity. Who remembers what those three things are? If you get it wrong, you're a heretic. What was it? There's only one God, that's right. Somehow this one God consists of three persons? Yeah, that's right. Like from Rudy. There is a God and I'm not him. And the last one is each person is truly and fully God. Jesus is not a third of God. He's God. The Spirit's not a third. He's God. Whatever it means to be God, that's true of the Son and the Spirit as well as the Father. And so we talked about that when it comes to the Trinity. And then when we studied Christ, we studied what's called Christology, the person of Christ, we saw these four truths. That Jesus is only one person, Christ is only one person, there's not two Jesuses, there's not four Jesuses, there's just Jesus, but he has two distinct natures, okay, that he's fully God and fully human. These two natures are not blended, they're not uh, mixed, he's not like a mule which isn't really a donkey or a horse, it's just kind of this third something. We said that he has two distinct natures and those two natures are that he is truly and fully God. Whatever it means to be God, that's true of the Son. 
okay? He's not, uh, the father's not older than the son or something like that. He's co-eternal, he's co-equal. However strong God is, he's that strong. However infinite God is, he's that infinite. Whatever it means to be God, that's true of the son. So we talked about how Jesus is fully God because only God can save, and we need that if he's going to save us. But we also talked about how he is truly and fully human, okay? He's not Clark Kent, who just looks like us but really isn't a human, right? Just from another planet or something. He's actually truly human. He actually gets tired and he feels weak and he's born through Mary and all these other things. And so he is truly and fully God, but he's also truly and fully human. So everybody good on the orthodox, biblical, historical version of Jesus? That's a big one, okay? That's a big one. We wanna make sure we're worshiping the right God, okay? God is a trinity. When we take the second person of this trinity, Christ, who has always been God, the Son, incarnates himself, and you get one person who is two distinct natures, fully God and fully man, okay? Now, I'm gonna write some more words on the board because I know you guys like my handwriting, so that's why I do this, because it's clear and not scary, not serial killer-ish. Okay, I wanna mention something that we're gonna be talking about today. Sometimes what theologians will do is distinguish between what's called Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience, okay? His active obedience and his passive obedience. Okay, let me explain what this means and what it doesn't mean. A lot of people get confused in this. What a lot of theologians will say is that Christ's active obedience is what he earns for you in his life, and his passive obedience is how he earns your salvation through his death on a cross. One is active because he's actively doing deeds of righteousness, The other one is passive in that suffering is being done to him. Wrath is being poured out on him. That's how a lot of people will define Jesus' active and passive obedience, okay? That that, that, That distinction is actually not how the reformers meant these two phrases, okay? To the reformers, the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ is not two different periods of history. It's not during his earthly life there was active obedience, then that's done, and now on the cross there's just passive obedience. Instead, both in Christ's life And in Christ's death, you see both his active and his passive obedience. So these are not two different eras in Christ's earthly ministry. These are two sides of the same coin of what Jesus is doing. In Jesus' life, he's earning our salvation, but he's also suffering passively, like when he's tempted in the wilderness. On the cross, he's suffering passively, but he's also actively wanting to do that. He's being obedient to God by going to the cross. And so the active and passive obedience of Christ is not just his earthly life and his death on a cross. Those two go together both for his life and for his death on a cross. But here is what we're going to be talking about today. I've got four propositions for you in your notes, okay? Four propositions for you in our notes. We're gonna look at each one of these four propositions. I think you're gonna like this. I think it will really encourage you, okay? Here is the first one. Jesus must earn our salvation by living a perfect life on our behalf, okay? Jesus must earn our salvation by living a perfect life on our behalf. Again, what we've said is salvation is earned, it's just not earned by you. It's earned by somebody. For you, it's a free gift. For you, you just repent and believe and you receive it, but somebody has to earn it. And what we're gonna say today is that uh, the Bible's very clear that it's Christ who's earned our salvation by living a perfect life on our behalf. Now, let me tell you why this is important. I don't think that this gets talked about in churches enough, okay? I think we talk about how we're saved by Christ's death. We talk about how we're saved by Christ's resurrection, but very often we don't hear how we're actually saved by his righteous life. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a tendency to think that the Gospel is really just what happens at the end of the story. 
So there's all these cool, interesting facts where Jesus is engaging with interesting people and he's doing cool magic tricks. But then when you get to the end, that's the gospel, just when there's his death and resurrection. But here's what I'm going to say. The entire gospel is the gospel that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John understood what they were writing to be gospels, which includes the life of Christ. The good news is not just that Jesus died for you. That would make you neutral. The good news is that Jesus died for you and lived perfectly and lived righteously on your behalf so that you're seen as positively righteous. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between if I'm a sinner and my sin's simply taken away, but I haven't followed any of God's commands, then I'm just neutral. That doesn't merit salvation. But instead, what Christ does is not only take away our sin on the cross, but he lives the life we should have lived. That's what he's doing in his earthly ministry. Where we have failed, he is succeeding. He is being obedient to all aspects of the Mosaic law because I have failed in those and you have failed in those. We're commanded not to lie. We're commanded to honor our parents. We're commanded not to commit adultery, not to commit adultery in our heart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We fail in those things. And so Christ in his faithfulness earns and merits our salvation for us. He correctly follows all those things whereas we have failed. So what this means is this. I'm going to come back to this several times in this lesson, but this is the one big takeaway I want for everybody to, to, to realize. You're not merely just forgiven for your sins, but God's mad at you because you're not doing good enough. You are seen as positively 100% righteous in Christ because Christ has already earned it for you. You cannot improve upon Christ's gift. You cannot do better and make God love you more. You cannot be more righteous than the perfect son of God. It doesn't work, okay? It's perfect. You can't add to perfection. He has kept the law on your behalf. So we have a tendency just to think when we got saved, that was just like a reset, right? It was a reset and my sins are forgiven and now I get a second chance. No, it's bigger than that. You died, all your sins were forgiven, all Christ's righteousness is seen as yours and now you live in perfect righteousness even though you sin. God still sees you as perfectly righteous because Christ never sinned. Do you see how big that is? You see how fundamental that is for your thinking? You don't need to just think of yourself as, okay, I'm forgiven and God tolerates me. You need to think I'm forgiven and God sees me as perfect God sees me as having, in a sense, never broken those commands because Christ never broke those commands. I died and I'm in Christ, okay? So that's what we'll wanna focus on today as we go through this. But the first proposition is that Jesus must earn our salvation by living a perfect life on our behalf. Let's go over some texts. Matthew 3.15, but Jesus answered him, this is talking to John the Baptist, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Have you ever wondered why Jesus gets baptized? Why does Jesus get baptized? Somebody, yell it out. It sounded like a rhetorical question, but it's a real question. Yes, it's in the text, to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus doesn't need to be baptized because he needs to repent of sin. Also, Jesus doesn't get baptized just to give us an example. I've heard a lot of people say that. that The reason we get baptized today is because Jesus got baptized. No, according to the book of Acts, the baptism John is doing is different than Christian Trinitarian baptism for the forgiveness of sins and these kind of things. The reason Jesus gets baptized is because he is living a perfect life on our behalf. Does Jesus need to be baptized? No, but if he's going to be obedient, what he's doing is he's aligning himself with John the Baptist's repentance, kingdom of God message, because that's what we should do, okay? Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus, as a Jew, offer sacrifices uh, and bring up sacrifices to be offered in the temple? Yes. But did Jesus ever sin? No. Then why is he offering sacrifices? Because the Old Testament commands that you offer sacrifices. Though he doesn't need to do that for his own sin because he is sinless, he is doing all these things to fulfill all righteousness. We need to do these things, and so he's doing them on our behalf. 
okay? That's what's going on with his baptism. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, okay? You need to realize that Christ resists temptation on our behalf. When he is out in the wilderness and he is being tempted, he really feels the temptation, okay? He really has to feel that temptation, feel the full weight of it, and he resists, okay? Uh, Whereas Israel, when they're for 40 years in the wilderness, they're tempted to trust the manna. They're tempted to trust the bread instead of God, and they're tempted to commit idolatry and all these other things. Jesus, for 40 days in the wilderness, when he's being tempted, is faithful. He trusts God. He doesn't trust turning the stones into bread, and he doesn't worship the devil and bow down to idolatry, and he doesn't test God by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple like uh, Israel was testing God in the wilderness. He resists those temptations so he can be a sympathetic high priest. So when you say, Jesus, I'm hurting, I'm tempted, I'm struggling, he can say, I know exactly how you feel. That's part of my incarnation, okay? Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So notice that he is earning our salvation. He is learning obedience. He is resisting temptation. He's going to the scriptures. Again, he is truly human, okay? Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Notice again here you see Christ's active and passive obedience in this passage, that as Christ goes to the cross, he's actively being obedient. He's actively doing something that he is supposed to do. Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Notice here that uh, it's talking about Christ's act of obedience. Adam did bad things, we're all counted as bad in Adam. Christ did good things, including dying on a cross, including living a perfect life. It all is mixed together in the New Testament. It doesn't separate those things out. Uh, and so that is credited to those who are believers. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This text just said that Jesus became our righteousness. Our righteousness is not because of us. It's not because of something that we do. It's not because of some sacrament or some church ritual that we partake in. It's because of being united to Christ. He has been righteous on our behalf, and we are seen as righteous in him. Everybody good with that one? This is one of those things that the lesson is not hard to get. It's just hard to live your life in and apply all the time. Some lessons are really difficult when we're talking about, you know, what does it mean for, uh, you know, the book of Jude to be talking about some obscure passage. Today, the message is very simple. Jesus earned your salvation by his perfect life, as well as his death and resurrection. Do you renew your mind with that every day? Do you get up like Luther would do and say before he starts the day, I'm accepted, and then work out of that acceptance? Or do you try to do your Christianity to earn God's acceptance? One of those is biblical. The second one is not, okay? Proposition number two. Jesus must replay the role of Adam and succeed where he failed. Jesus must replay the role of Adam and succeed where he failed. We talked a little bit about this last week in, uh, in the sermon. We as Americans are very individualistic. We have a tendency to just see us and our actions and ourselves. We forget that in the Bible, it's much more communitarian, that uh, different groups of people are lumped together. So you belong to the nation of Israel, or you belong to the church, and Christ died for you, but he also died for the church. It's a corporate thing, and the Bible will talk about God's elect and these kind of things, that uh, God is more about groups, and he's more about a community than we have a tendency sometimes to think. And so how this works in the ancient world is what is called federalism, that we are seen as being under one of two heads, one of two ambassadors for humanity. 
One is Adam. Is he a good ambassador? No. Because of his bad things, the ambassador for humanity makes all of humanity look bad. We talked about this last week. An ambassador doesn't represent themselves only. They represent a larger people group. So when Adam sins, it makes all humanity look bad because he's our ambassador. But what the Bible will see is that Christ is the last Adam, that he is the better ambassador. And because of his righteousness, now everybody linked to him can be seen as righteous. So if you're an ambassador, if I'm an ambassador for the U.S., and I go to another country, and I offend that country's leader or king or president, he hates all of Americans, okay? Because I've been a bad ambassador. That's how we're born. We're born into the bad ambassadorship of Adam, okay? But there was another country with a better ambassador who represented that country well, and that's Christ. And when we are born again, we switch our allegiance. We move away from the kingdom of Satan, we move away from Adam, and we become a citizen of a new nation with a better ambassador who is Christ. Let me give you a few passages here. Romans 5, 18 through 21. We'll be talking a lot about Adam and Christ in uh, the next few weeks with the sermons. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That means for all men who would be attached to the ambassador Jesus, not just generic salvation for everybody. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, for as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you see this strong contrast in who is representing humanity, all right? This is why the ancients would say it's really, really important that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If he's not fully God, he can't save you. Only God can save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But if he's also not fully human and truly human, then you can't be saved, right? He has to live that life on your behalf. He has to really be truly human, okay? And so here I've put a little chart that contrasts Adam and and, and Jesus. So let's look at these. First of all, Adam was a representative for humanity. Jesus is a representative for humanity. Those are the same. Okay, Adam was tempted, Jesus was tempted. Those are the same. Now it's about to get very different. Okay, look at this contrast. This is very important. When Adam was tempted, did he succeed or did he fail? He failed, okay? Who deceived him? Satan, right? The serpent. Snakes don't talk, by the way. So there's something demonic going on with that serpent. And so the devil deceives Adam. He falls. The devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted. Same kind of idea. That serpent slithers in, if you will. But Jesus succeeds. Whereas Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. Adam's uh, failure led to death. That when you eat of this, you will die. The reason the world is broken is because mankind rebelled against God and walked away in the person of Adam and everything became broken, and so that led to death, whereas with Christ, it leads to life. What you see in Christ's ministry is the anti-Adam. He's reversing the effects of the fall. Sickness and demonic oppression and all those things come in, and Jesus casts them away and heals and does these kind of things. Whereas Adam led to death, Jesus leads to life. Uh, Adam was defeated by the devil, okay? Adam was defeated by the devil, whereas Jesus defeats the devil, okay? Jesus defeats the devil on the cross. Let me give this example. We, we actually talked about this in our community group last, uh, last week. What you have in the biblical pattern is you have God over everything. He creates man. 
He gives him Eve as his helper, as his wife, and they together are to rule over the animals. And even as the animals are listed, you have birds, you have more majestic animals like horses and these kind of things, and then at the bottom of the spectrum, you have creeping things, right? Gross animals, the kind of animals where if you live in, uh, you know, I don't know, Louisiana, I'm just joking for those from Louisiana, you'll find uh, underneath your porch or whatever, reptiles and these kind of things. And so there's this kind of hierarchy. What you see in the fall of mankind is a reversal of that hierarchy. You have this creeping thing, the lowest of the animals, go to the woman, tempting also the man, rebelling against God. It's a complete inversion of the way that God set up creation in Genesis 1 through 3. And uh, whereas with Christ, you have the opposite. What should have Adam done? He should have said, I have dominion over you. You're a creature. He should have stomped that serpent's head and threw it out of the garden. He didn't do that. Christ, though, does that. Christ in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, knows he's going to a cross to crush that serpent's head. This is why Ephesians will say that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay? Adam was kicked out of Eden. Jesus reestablishes Eden. If you look in the, the book of Revelation, no S, if you look at the book of Revelation towards the end, there's this new Edenic garden city. It's even better. Mankind was commanded to subdue the earth. So the Bible moves from a garden without things really subdued to a city. Adam failed in the garden, but Christ has succeeded in bringing about this new Jerusalem, this uh, Edenic city where everything's great and beautiful and perfect. There's no more weeping or crying or pain. He accomplishes where Adam has failed. And then lastly, we are born into Adam. We are born again into Christ, okay? So kind of that analogy I used with the ambassador, you're born in a sinful nation, if you want to say it that way. You're born with a nation that's had a bad ambassador, and because you're a citizen of that nation, God does not like you. But if you will renounce that, if you will give your citizenship to a new nation with a better ambassador, a better representative, Christ, you can then be seen as a citizen of that nation and be counted righteous in Christ. Everybody good with that so far? Two more big propositions. By the way, there's a lot we could talk about in the life of Christ. I mean, we could spend years going through this. So if you're thinking, Zach, these propositions are great, but aren't there others? Yes, this is totally arbitrary what we're doing. I'm just trying to give you some important stuff because there's just not enough time to cover everything that he's done. According to the Bible, if everything that he had done had been written down, it might not even be able to be contained in all the books in the world. So because of that, uh, we're not going to be able to contain it all in uh, four pages of notes in 50 minutes. So proposition three. Jesus must replay the role of Israel and succeed where they failed, okay? So not only does Israel replay the role of Adam and succeed where they failed, not only does Jesus replay our role, whereas I've sinned against God, he is not, but he replays the role of Israel, okay? Now, this is a big one, especially if you grew up in uh, going to maybe a, a Bible church, going to a lot of Baptist churches, you grew up dispensational, you'll have a tendency to think that the nation of Israel is just about the nation of Israel. What I'm gonna contend to you is that really what the Bible's gonna say and what the Apostle Paul says very clearly is that all the promises made to the nation of Israel were really made about one particular seed, not about the nation just corporately forever, but rather about one particular seed, a true Israelite who would be the Israel that Israel should have been. Israel failed to be a light to the nations, but there would be another Israel, a better Israel, who would succeed where Israel has failed, okay? Now, we see this in places where Paul will say that that promise to Abraham's seed is not to plural, but to singular. We see some direct texts that say what I just said, but I want to show you some other things. I put together a really big chart that we're going to work through that I think you'll find really, really interesting. I've got a quote there from a uh, New Testament theologian named N.T. Wright, uh, who I really like on most things. He's a little sketchy on justification, but on most other things, he's good. And he says, Jesus is Israel personified. He's Israel as a man. 
okay? Let me show you all the parallels here between uh, Israel and Jesus. And there's probably more than this. These are just all the ones I could think of as I was preparing my notes. Israel is from Abraham. Jesus is from Abraham. When you see his genealogy, right, and you start reading through the genealogy and you're like, this is so boring. What's the deal with all these weird names? Those people are significant to the promises in the Old Testament, okay? That's why that's there. But he is linked to Abraham. Israel, in Exodus 4.22, is called God's son, right, in the sense that he adopts them. Uh, Other nations don't belong to him in the Old Testament, though he's sovereign over everyone. It's Israel that's his special special possession, whereas Jesus is God's eternal son. He's the son in a Trinitarian sense. He's always been the son. He's always existed. There's always been father, son, and spirit. Israel is delivered from an evil king, Pharaoh, who tries to kill the male children. You remember this story? Pharaoh's like, oh man, there's too many Jews being born, so when males are born, so when these babies are born, we're going to send these Hebrew midwives, and we're going to tell them they need to kill the babies. They don't kill the babies. Pharaoh says why, and they lie. They're like, the Hebrew women are just real women. They're just like popping out babies like a Pez dispenser. We can't get there in time. Babies are just shooting across the floor. The Egyptian women are wimps. They languish. They're in labor for like two weeks. They're, but they're different. The Jewish women are real women. That's what they say. That's a paraphrase. They don't say Pez dispenser. Uh, that's a paraphrase. Now, when you read that story and then you read the story of the slaughter of the innocents in the Christmas story or in Matthew or whatever like this, you're not supposed to just go, oh, interesting. You're supposed to say, wait a second. Wait a second. Moses was a deliverer who an evil king tried to kill when he was a baby. And now you have Jesus who Herod, an evil king, is trying to kill when he's a baby. Do you see the parallels? And out of Egypt, God called his son. And out of Egypt, God calls his son, capital S. You're supposed to see those parallels, okay? You're supposed to see those parallels. Israel goes through the Jordan to enter the promised land. The Jordan River is a really important thing in the Old Testament. Israel goes through the Jordan. Jesus goes through the Jordan at his baptism. The way he leads people into the promised land going through the Jordan is through his ministry, which begins at his baptism. His baptism is seen as like his, uh, his anointing, his uh, beginning of his ministry, his empowerment by the Spirit for ministry. Okay? Israel has prophets and forerunners like Elijah. Jesus has a prophet slash forerunner like Elijah called John the Baptist. You remember this guy? In the Old Testament, there's this promise that before this Messiah comes, one in the power and spirit of Elijah is going to come. What did Elijah wear, by the way? What was his clothing? Do you remember? Yeah, he wore this like shaggy, gross hair tunic thing and a leather belt. What is John the Baptist wearing? Gross goat, camel, nasty hair, lives in the woods, weird guy, belt, and he's eating bugs. Why? Because he's replaying the role of Elijah. All right, he's replaying the role of Elijah. Israel has anointed prophets, priests, and kings. The anointing was this way of saying, may God bless you for this office. May the Spirit descend upon you for this office, okay? In the Old Testament, a bunch of people are anointed. The main three that are anointed are prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three of those. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He's anointed at his baptism. There's another sense in which he's anointed when the woman anoints his feet with her uh, perfume and these kind of things. But he's anointed his baptism and fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king. You guys with me so far? There's a lot here. Is this good stuff? This is good theology. We're learning more about Christ. Let's keep going. Israel is given God's law. They fail to keep God's law. Jesus keeps God's law perfectly, even addressing the human heart and interpreting it correctly. Let me say something that's important. When Jesus is interpreting the Mosaic law, he's not giving a bunch of new things. He's showing how they've misinterpreted the law. He's showing how the Pharisees have missed it. The Pharisees would say, I can look upon that woman in lust because I didn't actually touch her. And Jesus says, no, your heart's actually really evil. 
The Pharisees would say, I can hate that guy in my heart because I didn't really murder him. And Jesus would say, is that what God wants? God wants you to just have all this hatred in your heart towards this person as long as you don't murder them? No, okay? So he addresses even the heart of the law. His interpretation of the law is better than the Pharisees, okay? Israel has 12 tribes. Jesus has how many disciples? 12. You ever wonder why that's significant? Why not 13? Why not 11? Why is it so important in the book of Acts once Judas has fallen off where they're like, we've got to get another guy. There's got to be 12. Because they see Israel as being reconstituted around Christ, okay? Israel is tempted in the wilderness for 40 years by idolatry, trusting bread instead of God, and testing God, and fails. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by idolatry, trusting bread instead of God, and testing God, and succeeds, okay? Israel gives prophecies, foreshadows a kingdom of God. So if you read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the prophets in the Old Testament, they will say, one day is coming where the wolf will lie down with the lamb where evil will be cast out, where our enemies will be defeated. There's this foreshadowing and this promise of these things to come. Whereas Jesus actually begins to establish the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that in a second. We'll talk about that in a second, okay? Wind and waves are controlled by God at the Red Sea. So again, Exodus is kind of like the gospel of the Old Testament. Exodus is where God delivered a helpless people under a leader that they couldn't get out of that was burdening them and delivered them and brought them into a promised land and made a covenant with them. Exodus is like the gospel of the Old Testament. And in that, God is the one who controls the wind and the waves. God is the one who parts the sea. It's God in the book of Job that tells Leviathan he can go this far and no further. Uh, In the beginning, uh, when God's creating everything, the spirit is hovering over the waters, bringing peace uh, to the chaos. And here in Jesus' ministry, we see the wind and the waves controlled by him, okay? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He's the God of the Old Testament. He's Yahweh. He's God. That's what he is. That's the point it's supposed to be making. The same God that parted the sea to get Egypt out of, I'm sorry, sorry, to get Israel out of Egypt is the same God that calms the winds and the waves to get his disciples to dry land, okay? The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, Israel had prophets and the law, okay? In fact, the Old Testament is really divided into three parts, the prophets, the writings, and the law. Jesus, at his transfiguration, you see this uh, kind of fulfillment of the prophets and the law. You see Elijah and Moses at his transfiguration, where the disciples, some of the disciples, not all of them, just Peter, James, and John, get to see a glimpse of Jesus' glory, if you want to say it that way. Uh, Israel had, uh, had the temple where they would go to worship. Jesus is the temple. He tabernacles among us. He's the tabernacle. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. He says that, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. You no longer pray facing Jerusalem like the Jews would do. You pray facing Jesus. If you want to go to most fully feel God's presence, you don't go to the temple like they used to go to. You go to Christ, okay? Israel has the king. Have I sufficiently beat this dead horse? Because we're going to keep beating it because this is important. Israel has the kingly tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the kingly tribe of Judah. Uh, Israel celebrates Passover in remembrance of God's deliverance. Uh, Jesus takes the Passover and makes it about his death, celebrates communion in remembrance of God's deliverance. Israel has a sacrificial system. Jesus is sacrificed for sin. Israel has a lot of prophets, but they kind of have one big one that really kicks them off, and that's Moses. And Jesus is said to be a prophet like Moses. Israel is... uh, has promises to be a light to the nations, whereas Jesus is a light to the nations. Uh, Israel is given manna from heaven. Jesus multiplies the loaves, okay? He being God is providing. Israel has blessing from Gentile magi. I don't remember if you remember the story of a guy named Balaam who's hired by this pagan nation to curse Israel, 
okay? The idea of cursing in the Bible is not using a four-letter word. That's how we have a tendency to use the word cursing. And cursing in the Bible is saying, may God let something bad happen to you, or may God bless you. The idea of blessing someone is you can't bless them, you can't curse them, you're asking God to curse them or bless them. So this pagan nation has this uh, evil magi, warlock kind of guy who uh, is supposed to go and curse Israel. And instead, when he gets there to curse them, he ends up just blessing them instead, okay? At Jesus' birth, what you have is you have Gentile magi coming from the east, Gentiles, pagans, coming and worshiping Jesus, okay? Israel's called out of Egypt. Jesus is called out of Egypt. Uh, Israel worships Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Now, there's other ones you could do. One I just thought of as I was talking is Israel is given God's law on the mountain, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian law, if you will, from the Mount. There's other ones too you can find, but one of the things you need to see is that all these things are not coincidental. It's not as though Jesus picks 12 disciples just because that's his favorite number. He's reconstituting Israel around himself, and where they have failed, he is succeeding, okay? Proposition four. This is the last one. We'll spend a little time on this, and then I'll have Jeff Ashley come up, and we'll have extra Q&A today, okay? Proposition four. Jesus is showing that the end times kingdom of God has broken into the present in his ministry. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do some drawing because I know you guys love drawing. Okay, we're going to do this. Okay, MasterCard, everywhere you want to be. Now, this circle will symbolize the fall. The present age, what happened in Adam? So give me some things that came as the result of Adam's sin. Death. What else? What was it? Taxes. <laughs> That's great. The only two things that are for certain, death and taxes. What is it? Sickness. Pain. What else? Uh, Yeah, work being more laborious. Yeah, mankind was made to work before the fall, but it becomes laborious now. The ground bears thorns and thistles. So I'll say TNT, thorns and thistles, okay? What else? Infighting, yeah, so let's say uh, division. Let's say there's a lot you could say, demonic oppression. In fact, we could actually just name everything that's bad and broken in the world, okay? So this is what the Jews would refer to as this present evil age. In Jewish thinking, the world uh, and time progresses linear. So right now, we're in the present evil age, marked by the effects of the fall. But one day, sorry, I'll do it the other way since you guys are uh, opposite of me. So there's Adam, there's the fall, and this is the present evil age. This is the world marked by all the effects of the fall. But there was this hope that one day when God sent his Messiah, there would be a separate age, a second age, what the Bible calls the age to come or the kingdom of God. Okay? And it would be marked by the reversal of all those things. Okay? So what does the kingdom of God look like? Name some things that uh, you would expect if there were no sin and no problems in the world. Peace. Instead of division, there's peace. What else? No pain. No pain. What else? Huh? Life. And yes, instead of death, there's life, resurrection. What else? No what? Oh, yeah, no want. So plenty. So let's say abundance or uh, prosperity. But when I say prosperity, I don't mean it in the uh, Benny Hen way. I just mean blessings from God. Okay, what else? Worship. 
Okay? Demons cast out. Demons gone, etc. Now, again, we could make that list really, really, really long. So, in Jewish thinking, what would happen is this. You live in the present evil age. Present evil age. P. Present evil age. Marked by the effects of the fall. Okay? But when the Messiah comes, instead of being P, you move to Cog. You have the kingdom of God. Okay? And the idea is, is that it would be marked by all the things you see, for example, in Isaiah 11. That, uh, you know, the, the child can play over the adder's den and the, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and all these good things, okay? This is how Jews thought it would happen in two spheres, okay? In two separate, okay, so in Jewish thinking it was more like this. Two separate circles, okay? What we have in the New Testament, though, is that these two ages overlap, okay? We see both of these ages at once. Do we still see death today? Yes, but guess what we also see? Resurrection, because Christ has been raised. So you have death, but you also have resurrection. Sorry that you can't read any of this. I mean, what word is that? I mean, if you, if you didn't, I didn't say resurrection, you would never guess what word this is, okay? Do we see sickness today? Yes, but do we also see people healed? Where we pray for somebody and they get healed? They do. Healing. Do we see demonic oppression? Yes, but we also see demons cast out, et cetera, et cetera. So here's what I'm trying to say. The end times has already broken into the present in Christ, okay? In the Jewish thinking that this world would be bad, then there would be a strong break, and then there would be the age to come, the kingdom of God, that paradigm was wrong, that these two ages actually overlap, and we live here. We live in this area right here. We live in the overlap of the ages. We live where the kingdom of God and the present evil age overlap, which is why we see both these things. Why do we see death, but we also see resurrection? Why do we see sin, which separates people from God, but we also have the offer of forgiveness of sin in Christ? Because the kingdom of God, God's end times, putting the world back to rights, fixing everything, has already begun in Christ. Do you believe that? Or do you think the end times is just something that's future? We're living in the end times. The end times is what happens when people start getting up from the grave and people have demons cast out. So here's what I'm trying to say. In Jesus' ministry, I say all that to say this. In Jesus' ministry, he's not merely going around doing cool magic tricks. In Jesus' ministry, he's showing that the kingdom of God has broken into the present. He's showing that the evil effects of the fall are being done away with. Sickness comes because of the fall, so guess what Jesus does? He heals the sick. Demonic oppression comes because of the fall, so guess what Jesus does? He casts out demons, okay? Division comes because of the fall. What is he? The Prince of Peace. And so what you're seeing in the ministry of Jesus is not how you might have read it as a kid, which is Jesus does cool miracle, Jesus does cool miracle, Jesus does cool miracle, Jesus does cool miracle, then he dies for my sins. It's him getting there and saying, the kingdom of God is among you and starting to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Jesus's ministry is Normandy. It is the beginning of the end of the Nazis. It is the beginning of the end of Satan's reign. When he comes onto the scene, he starts reversing the effects of the fall. Adam was disobedient, he's obedient. Adam's sin led to death, he's resurrected. The end has begun in Christ. The future has broken into the present in the person of Jesus. That's exciting. The best time to enter the military during World War II is after the Allies have taken Normandy. That's when we're all born. If you're born post-Christ, you live in the most exciting time to be born in world history Because, though we still see the effects of the P, the present evil age, one day we will no longer see any of this and there will only be the kingdom of God. Right now these two ages overlap. The kingdom has begun, but it has not been consummated yet. It is not uh, finalized yet. Let me give you some passages. 
Mark 1.15 and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice that Jesus says the kingdom of God, this end times idea of perfect peace that you had in the Old Testament uh, is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mark 9.1, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, if you've ever read that and said, wait, is Jesus saying these people won't die until the kingdom comes? That seems wrong because they died and the kingdom's not here. No, you've just missed it. The kingdom is here. He, they see the kingdom come at his resurrection, okay? That's when the kingdom comes. Luke 4, 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Matthew 12, 28, uh, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Notice what he just said there. When does the kingdom of God start? He says, if he's casting out demons by the power of the spirit, and that's what he does. He then cast out demons, okay? Luke 10, 9, Heal the sick, he's telling his disciples when they're going out in their ministry. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So he tells his disciples to go into a town, pray for somebody. When they're healed, say, the kingdom's begun. It's already begun. This end times, putting the world back to rights, perfection has already begun. When Jesus is asked to read a passage of scripture, what passage would you read? If you were Jesus, would you read Isaiah 53? What would you read? Here's what Jesus reads when he's given a chance to read in the synagogue. Luke 4, 18 through 21 says this. says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he takes this passage about one who's coming to reverse the effects of the fall, to set the captives free, to heal the blind, to do all that. These things the Jews were thought would happen at the end of time, and he reads it, and then he does like a mic drop, and he sits down and says, that's begun today in me, okay? And here you see the kingdom of God contrasted with the devil's kingdom. The kingdom of Satan is marked by death, I'm sorry, sin, death, demonic oppression, false doctrine, Oppression, sickness, bondage. The kingdom of God is marked by forgiveness, resurrection, demons being cast out, true doctrine, a light yoke, an easy burden, healing, and freedom, okay? So here's my conclusion, then I'll have Jeff come up five minutes early, which is more Q&A time, because I know you guys love Q&A. Here's the conclusion that I want you to wrestle with, okay? We are saved by the death and resurrection of Christ, but we are also saved by his obedient, righteous life. He succeeded where Adam failed. He succeeded where Israel failed. He succeeded where you and I failed. We can be counted righteous only because he lived a perfectly obedient life on our behalf. So here's the million-dollar question for you. Where are you trusting in your righteous life instead of Jesus' righteous life on your behalf? It's easy for me to think, at my conversion, God forgave me, but I've really messed up, and I've sinned a bunch since then, so now I'm kind of a Christian with an asterisk. It says like on my contract, Zach, a Christian, and then there's an asterisk, and you see the fine print, and it's like, but he committed all these sins post-conversion, and really he's kind of an awful guy. That's not how God sees me. That's not how God sees you. You are seen as being as perfect as Christ. You cannot improve upon it. Go be as righteous as you want to. Give everything you have to the poor. Go be Mother Teresa. Go do all that. You're still not better than Christ. His righteousness cannot be added to. Do you believe that? When you lay your head on the pillow, do you say, God sees me as righteous as Christ? He sees me as perfect. Or do you say, I had a pretty good day because I read my Bible. Or I had a really bad day because I sinned a bunch today. One of those is biblical, which is I'm righteous in Christ. Not this whole how am I doing in God's eyes. In God's eyes, if you're a Christian, you're always doing great. You're always doing just fine. You never have to wonder how you're doing. You're seen as perfect. 
okay? You're seen as perfect. Do you believe that he was righteous on your behalf? Or, hear me now, especially church people, do you have a checklist of do's and don'ts and you think that when you're crushing that checklist, you're doing a good job in that checklist, then God's really happy with you. And when you're not, you're not checking all the don'ts or do's or whatever, then God's mad at you. There's already been a checklist and it's the Old Testament Mosaic law and Christ has checked off all those boxes for you. In God's eyes, you are seen as 100% righteous. All the do's and don'ts Christ has kept on your behalf. Now, do we walk in righteousness? Of course we do, but it's only because we are righteous. Do you see the, the difference? We don't rock and walk in righteousness to be seen as righteous. We're already seen as righteous, and then we walk in it. The Christian life is simply this, ready? Be what you are. Be what you are. You're already righteous. You're already perfect. You're already seen as spotless in God's eyes, so it doesn't matter how you're doing practically down here on earth. Rather, realize you're forgiven, and then be what you are. You're already forgiven, so walk in forgiveness. You already have peace with God, so walk in that. You're already seen as perfect in Christ, so now you're free to not walk in sin and you're free to walk in righteousness. But it's a result of your salvation, not to earn your salvation, okay? Jeffrey, come up and give us some smart things.